Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back to the Legend Rouge Cycling Podcast for the Men's World Championships Road Race Recap Finishing on this Sunday afternoon in mixed conditions in Glasgow. Got a bit of everything, sun, rain, a tight technical city circuit. Starting in Edinburgh, though, 272 k's across west to Glasgow. The first third of the race, first 100 k's, yeah, they, they just go out and do some, some roads, Benji, grow <laughs> uh, <laughs> roads. I mean, it's never in a World Championships race will this really define the race. Uh, a couple of climbs, but it's everything is about this circuit, which we saw a bit of yesterday in the men's junior and women's junior race. Mm-hmm. Uh, one by his young French rider and uh, a Danish rider. But what was really notable about that circuit was, see, it's tough to see exactly a, a circuit just on a map and a parkour and a profile. Yep. Seeing people race on it, I know it's the juniors. One thing was clear, Benji, this is not a circuit you want to chase on. At eight, nine laps, there's a there's 50 corners a lap. That's 10 times 50 is 500, quick maths. There's a punchy <laughs> climbs, there's wet. The, the road surface, they decided not to resurface uh, any of it, <laughs> the manual yeah. covers. Yeah, it just... Did anything yesterday change your opinion on this race, seeing it in the flesh? I think beforehand that I had a feeling that we would have a race that was raced up front. So anticipating moves, trying to make sure you're in every single move. If you're a big country, that would be something I was looking forward to for every single big team. And I would say that the amount of corners in the flesh gave me a bit more of a a guidance towards riders that were favorites for this race as a consequence of their technique, because that would be very important on a parkour like this. But I was I was just looking forward to it. And the thing with this race as well is that I'm not really that intrigued in the first 120 kilometers either, like you say, but it is some kind of build up towards the circuit. So I do live with the hype towards the circuit, but let's be honest about it. In the first 120 kilometers of this race, no major racing action happened. We had a breakaway with about nine riders. Most importantly, the names were Matthew Dinham, Kevin Vermarke. Those are the two riders that were really strong in that breakaway. Chris Nylans as well in there. And that breakaway was up the road with a gap of eight minutes with the likes of Frederik Frison for Belgium, for example, doing the Declaric role, the, the role where you control the breakaway, make sure that they don't get 20 minutes on the route. And that's exactly what he did, eight minutes. And then we had some action. Well, some action that caused non-action in the race. A protest happened where... The race was basically stopped because of a protest on the road. Some people have had glued themselves onto the road or something. So it took 45 minutes to get the glue gone and get the people off the road as well. And that led to the race just being paused for 45 minutes. And I, I actually think this influenced the race a bit because there was no hardcore rain expected in the last hour and a half of this race. But by making the race finish 45 minutes later you're causing the late rain expected in the late phase of this rain to happen 45 minutes earlier on the parkour, right? Yeah, that's true. And, you know, 
that rain probably would have appeared in the last 10Ks, yep. I think, maybe even around that sort of time frame. And maybe people are already gone by that point. You're not expecting a big peloton with 10Ks less than one lap to go. So, yeah, I mean, I was watching Eastern Promises at this point. I'm a little bit sick. I couldn't compete against the Vatican City representing Andorra in this race as planned, unfortunately. But, you know, these things happen. So, yeah, when I tuned in, I timed it for the local circuit. And so they get going again. I was thinking, though, mm-hmm. Nalen's in that breakaway is one like Rube, World Champs when it's 280Ks or whatever with neutral with this circuit. If you're a decent rider like in a Paru Bay, you can go deep into this race. But yeah, yeah, they get onto the local circuit. I'm now watching. Benji's done the hard <laughs> graph. Australia are pacing with Plap. Uh, Denmark are going Merku. Frizon's done a lot of pacing. And I feel like very early on, Denmark actually were the team making the race. Yeah, Belgium controlled early, yep. but Denmark had a plan to be aggressive with Schielmoza mostly, but also I was surprised by how much Pedersen was doing with over three hours left. 100% that is, this brings me back to the classics we had earlier season where we were like, ooh, Pedersen is opening early for Trexiga Fredo, despite us expecting Steven to be that man for the team. And it feels like that exact same philosophy worked its way towards this race. And maybe he saw what happened at RV Viewer, for example, that he was in an early move and therefore was able to, I think, podium the race this year. Got third, I think, on RVV. So maybe he thinks that going early is beneficial for him. So he starts doing that, or the team starts doing that. We're still 150 kilometers from the line, so very far from the finish line. And this train of Denmark just keeps rolling for two laps, roughly, one and a half, two laps. and. At the front, you don't necessarily get a split too much. There were some splits, but they were closed quickly. But off the back, you instantly see riders drop. And obviously, there's some, there's some luggage in this peloton. Riders that are not used to riding at World Tour level and so forth, that are riding for countries that aren't necessarily represented in the World Tour every single day of the year. And those riders go off the back early. And I feel like we were quickly down to a group of 70, 60 riders. And one thing, while Denmark was pacing, Mikkel Bjerg showed us something. He had a DNF, mechanical, and race is over if you've got a serious mechanical here, if you need a new bike. Because if you wait for the cars, Denmark is flying so far fast at the front. Other teams are flying every lap as well that if you've got a mechanical at that one, your race is over, right? There's no straight sections where you can draft yeah. in the cars and come back. Or the straight sections, few and far between on this circuit, yeah, there's... You know, the straightest sections are actually the climbs, like the Montrose climb, but the one maybe straight section is where, yeah, everyone tries to move up and that actually means everyone goes fast. It's not like a huge, you know, they get, say, what's that big road in Flanders? I don't know. You have lots of big roads. They get onto a highway and it's super wide and everyone just, it's where Van Baal, I think, anticipated just after last year in Flanders, not this year. And there's no 3K section like that. There's barely a 300 meter section like that. So, yeah. Laporte also suffered a different phase of the race, but to, yep. p- to put a bow on that point, Laporte had a mechanical. Who knows how his race would have gone? I think probably a top, at least yeah. a top 10 candidate. He was a favorite for the race. Top 10 is probably doing him a disservice. Mechanical, flat, gone. See ya. Yep. Couldn't, didn't want to, by the time with the, the disc brake bikes, you get the wheel from Shimano neutral, it's all <laughs> over. Uh, so, so, so he waited for the bike from the team car and then, you know, France were already kind of cooking, cooked at that point. But talking about France, oh yeah, when Denmark was kind of pausing their efforts, we had a move by Alaphilippe, 
not too much later with Denmark responding, Søren Kuna Andersen, we're still 133 kilometers to go. And I'm like, this is probably the last time we're going to see Julian Alaphilippe in this race. Because this is so on-brand Alaphilippe, right? Attacking early like in the Tour de France multiple times and then he's gone. And the race was so hard up to that point that there was a limit of people that could still close that gap instantly, but there's enough to still close a Julien Alaphilippe at that point. So Atish Benoit, for example, for Belgium, who was clearly willing to neutralize every single move up the front, Belgium, they were like, if we're not in it, we don't want it. And Benoit going off, well, pacing at the front meant that Julien Alaphilippe and Sönker Andersen move was gone. Then we saw Skjelmose, Rota, Tobias Holland, Johansson trying the same thing. So we see these early moves with 130, 120 kilometers to go where people are trying to anticipate the moves of a potential Remco Evenepoel later, a potential favorite later. And Remco Evenepoel, let's talk about his positioning for a second. <laughs> he already looked bad, yeah. I feel like I can't place whether it was bad or whether it was pure positioning issues because I swear he started the circuit in like the last 10% of the peloton. And for 90% of this entire race, he rode in the last 20 positions of the group he was in, to me. And about 9% he was off the back in a group that was called behind because of positioning. And 1% he was trying to attack off the front. That's my share of what he was doing in this race. Yeah, and like lap one when Denmark pushed it, we already saw how quickly splits could form. This is lap two where Alaphilippe's initiated this move. And it's like when a world championships race or a Tour of Flanders goes like this and attacks start from serious nations like Denmark, yeah, it's already go time. You can say, oh, well, it's 133 k to go. They'll settle down, right? No, no, no. The attack phase has started. They, these teams have decided it's started. They're not waiting for the last climb with Mathieu van der Poel. And I was... This is where I also, with the plan with Belgium, Benji, and we spoke about this a little bit in the preview, I was like, isn't this where you want to be putting Benoit and Van Hooydonk in these moves too? Yeah. Because Van der Poel has this best classic strider in the world, right? Yeah. Inarguable. He has this somehow ability where he doesn't have to close down these moves himself. In fact, he doesn't even put Dylan Van Bala on the front to shut yeah. these down. And this guy is the best classic strider in the world. Belgium and does it for him. Belgium's like, you know what? We'll shut it down. And it was tough for me to elucidate a plan from Belgium in the early laps phase of this race. To me, it seemed like control. Yeah, it seemed like control, neutralizing moves and so forth, and kind of keeping both Evenepoel and both Fovenard in position. But I feel like Fonard was more active at that phase in the race. Even when these small moves were happening, I feel like... Even when Denmark went in lap one already, I feel like Wout van Aert was fifth position or sixth position trying to close down some gaps that already happened. So he was very active there. So I, I guess neutralizing Wout van Aert himself, keeping himself his position, that's kind of the, the strategy I could perceive from what was happening. But that even the pull position is not just costly because he can get on gaps, but it's also if you're at the back, you're just, and you're, you know that even the pool already has a disadvantage in these in these corners, then every single corner is going to cost him a bit more than if he was in a good position in the first place, because then a gap might open up 10 positions earlier. He needs to try and close that. And not just that, but it's hard for Belgium as a team who's racing at the front to keep out Van Aert in position to try and get this race their way to keep track of what Remco is doing when he's at the back all the time, you know? 
That makes no sense. No race radios. No race radios. So it's difficult to exactly know, you know, where everyone is straight away. No one can just get straight in the race. I'm dropped. I'm on, on yeah. the back of a split. Stop pulling. They can't do that. Um, and that moves us actually neatly to lap three. <laughs> 120 k's to go. And this is where I was confused. Well, not confused. It, it was kind of true to form, but I was like, Belgium need to anticipate. Like we said, Benji, in the preview, if you wait and don't use team tactics mm-hmm. and your plan is just to be better than Vanderpool on a punch at the end of this race, I have bad news for you. Because if it's 1v1, mano y mano, and you haven't bled him and made him struggle, we've seen Strada Bianca, we've seen Tour of Flanders. And so this was the phase where I thought, they're going to get it. They're going to join hands with Denmark because Denmark, that was Denmark were like, yeah, where they're under no illusions that Mads Pedersen can go with Van der Poel on those pinches or Van exactly. And, and so I thought they'd join hands with them. And instead, Van Hoydon kind of does a lead out Benji for Van Art. It creates this is lap 320 case to go three hours. It creates a split, maybe a third the way down the group. And you now have a group with every favourite, Vanderpool, Pogaccia, Pedersen, Skel, Moses, Schmidt, Kung, Trentin, Bediol, Van Hoydonk, and, and Van Aert. No, no other Belgians, even if all dropped. Yeah, exactly. And it was even set up with more than just Van Hoydonk, I vividly remember. Campenarts and Lampard, I feel like, yeah. were also working to set that up. So it was a clear move to try and get a move ahead. And that Van, Van Aert was in it, but Van Aert being in a group, Van Hoydonk being in there, and then all the other favorites in there, sorry, but that's a group that cannot, you can't go with that to the line. And fortunately for Belgium, that group got caught a few kilometers later, but actually don't know who was responsible for chasing that down behind. So Sturven. Was it Sturven? Belgium probably realized that. It was Sturven, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> this was the one where, where Remco's off the back and Sturven and, and Benoit were chasing. And listen, no race radios except that, but... I was really confused at this point. And, you know, we're focusing on Belgium a lot, but they were the race favourites. They had two of the three favourites for the race beforehand. They had the strongest and deepest team. And, I don't know, was that the... Maybe did the same thing happen on lap four, Benji? The breakaway's still ahead, by the way, with Dinham and Nalens. I've got the two moves confused, but is lap four pretty much exactly the same thing happened? Yeah, pretty much the same, but Van Hoydonk's launch there was basically hard pacing, it seemed like, but when Van Hoydonk hard paces, it's pretty rough for a lot of people in the wheel, and that's where, like you said, another group of 15-20 with Van Aert, with Mathieu van der Poel, with Pogacar, again creates, and then goes behind, and there's, if I recall, three other Belgians in the group of Remco as well, and he's roughly with a group of, if I had to guess, 10 riders, maybe behind? So we got to keep that in mind as well. But I wouldn't say, I think this was also once again a positioning thing. I, I understand that Vanad is once again trying to get ahead in a situation, but he's once again showing up with the likes of a, a Pogacar, the likes with a Vanderpool in, in the group. And that's not a beneficial group for Belgium either, I would end up saying. But Evenepoel ends up bridging to that group and we've got a larger group and a group of 25 riders. So suddenly it's all in a fine situation again. Denmark starts facing that group and I'm like, looking at it from a Belgian perspective, that's still a good group because then you've got a group of 25 with Steven, Benoit, Evenepoel, Van Aert, Van Hoydonk. Van Aert is in there. Pogacar is in there. This is not yet the, uh, 
the group that forms in a later lap where we've got some Belgian on Belgian action. <laughs> we'll go into that in a bit. This is still a, a preparation move, but I feel like this was the decisive group that got created. This is where the race is going to be fought. A group of roughly 30 riders we've got left at this point with 100 kilometers to go. And that's where we start seeing rolling attacks from the Belgians in that group. Remco and Wout. Oh, I think, but before then, before then, oh, I don't want to, because we did uh, erase them in the preview a little bit. I do feel like there was, the Italians kind of came yeah. to the front with Trentin and, and Rosa and Bediol, and they were getting active too. Nothing really happened, uh, but it was clear that they were there to play as well. Yes. And, and that was, by the way, because their start list wasn't confirmed. Italy are always good in world champs. Um, yeah. But yeah, they were also coming to the front. And Van der Poel is kind of hiding, not hiding, Benji. Yeah. He was actually Poggy. He's got no one before we get to the, the yeah. and this is important for the next phase. Poggy's got no one. Schielmoz has attacked a million times with Sir and Kra. Italy have been starting to get really active with Trentin. Uh, Belgium, I think, I don't know. It became clear. Two things back on the point of, I don't really know what they were trying to do with Van Aert and Van Hoydonk. Okay, you can say that. Secondly, that being said, Remco did look like shit on this circuit. Like, even though he's doing that pacing, Remco shouldn't be getting dropped. So that didn't look good for future. But yeah, the next phase, Benji, with Poggy on his own, Belgium actually do start trying to roll attacks with Van Hoydonk, with Skelmos, it didn't work with him. And then Wout and even Remco were rolling them. It's interesting with that Italian group formation attack and the and the belgian rolling attacks as well because i feel like it was kind of intertwined with each other you first had that emco attack which when that emco attacks it felt like he wasn't trying to go solo and i felt like he should try to go solo at this point because he was attacking over the ridge he had a gap yeah and, and schmidt, schmidt was doing the, doing these ones exactly schmidt, <laughs> schmidt was ready to be like this ain't my problem i'm from little old switzerland i'm neutral for the, for the podcast listeners, what did you just do when you said Schmidt was doing these ones? <laughs> <laughs> oh, turning your neck to one side and they, oh, this is not really much. That, you, we've seen that. Amstel Gold raced. Dylan turns Kwiatkowski over the finish line when Kwiatkowski yes. attacked. Or he, it was he or she, another Swiss rider, because they really don't, they are neutral. He or she <laughs> let him go. The gap was two meters, but you know what? Fuck you, Van der Poel, Mads Pedersen. I'm not closing this gap to Remco, do you? And, but he didn't yeah. go on with it. Exactly, and it's like he wanted people to go with him. And if a Pogacar and a Van der Poel are clearly trying to mark your moves, then it might be better to just go solo at that point and YOLO it. Because, yes, there are some domestiques there, like we then saw with Italy, because they're trying to launch with Velasco, with Bajoli, with Trentin, who then ends up crashing while doing that lead-out as well. So it kind of it went bad for Italy that way, but they threw everything at it to create a situation where Betiol was in a a favorable place where you can do some stuff in this race, which eventually started being created by what they were doing, so they somewhat achieved in that way. But back to the rolling attacks for a second, after Italy made that move, it starts to get interesting, like you say, the, the Remco wall attack one, the Wout Fanad one, the Remco one, the Wout Fanad one. Poggi was closing a lot of them for me. Oh, so many. Like, he was closing nearly every single one of these, so... He was one of those riders where he can't send a Tretnik with Aramco. He saw what happened last year, but he also doesn't have a Tretnik at this point. He's solo, so he needs to respond to everything. But is that also not in favor of Vanderpool that Poggi is doing all of that? 
It is, and, you know, Van der Poel had Van Baler there or thereabouts, maybe not right by the front, and, you know, Denmark had got multiple riders. Pedersen had to close a few himself, but it's clear. Van der Poel made a decision. I'm not closing Avonapool. I don't... Res- he, he, did, he didn't close the Avonapool attacks. Yeah. He closed Wouts, I think, one of them. And he's like, I'm not letting you go clear. So he picked the rider he thought was the most dangerous. Mm-hmm. Poggy, yeah, Poggy just, as I said, like Morich, <laughs> there's a guy I think would have been pretty good in this circuit. Not he and Morich. Um, yeah, Poggy was just... And I was like, this is good tactics. You know, this is what they should be doing. And not just with the two big guns, but with Sturvin, if you can, or... And and not just going solo, but yeah, getting in a group with Switzerland, with a Norway, with Tiller, who before he flattered out, with even Trentin is fine because you, you got to be the whole default position for Belgium is being terrified of Underpool yep. or Poggy, uh, so you got to be trying to work the or Pedersen work these guys over. I feel like one thing that became clear as well though is during these moves when Wout van Aert, for example, was in a group ahead for let's say there were eight nine riders in there for a second there and. He was in that group with Remco behind, which I think four Belgian riders in group two. So recap, Wout van was in group one for a bit. He had Van der Poel, he had Pogacar in that group, he had Pedersen in that group. And in group two, four Belgian, including Evenepoel, he was riding more than the majority of that group. And I think Wout is still in a lot of races just doing too much because not only is it not in favor of the Belgians that are trying to get back with four riders, because in the Belgian group behind, there was four other riders or five other riders not from their country, so it's 100% beneficial for them to come back. Now, they don't have radio, so maybe he doesn't know. He should realize that there's no other Belgians in the group, but on the other end, even if there's no Belgians behind, he shouldn't be riding in this group, because Denmark has two riders. Other teams also have two riders. I didn't know why Wout was riding in that group at all. I don't know. I don't know, but it's like Van der Poel makes it very clear how he races. And so it's always how Van der Poel races. It's next 73 Ks to go. Yeah. The little climb where they do the, the hairpin turn, very technical. He just launches it. And he's not going to be spending energy reacting to people. He spends his energy with a big haymaker, and he throws the first one in. Van Aert right on his wheel. He follows, and then Pagacha, Pedersen, and Betty all get across. They get across to the breakaway, which had Nalens, Dinham, Gamper, Vermarka, but only Dinham and Vermarka can really go with them initially, yeah. which is, you know, an impressive thing after being in the break all day. And I thought this move was gone, Benji, because Denmark's leaders there, Belgium's leaders there, Remco looked really bad at this point. Yeah. And I think it was fair enough to just transition away from, you know, worrying about him. Pagach is there, Italy's leaders there. Who's going to chase? Really, Switzerland and France, right? Yeah, and I feel like Franz was actually still there doing work in the chase. We had, oh, who was it? Someone was riding for Maduas. Benoit. Benoit. Benoit, yes. Benoit was riding for, uh, for Maduas. And that's uh, a rider from Ajitis Air riding for a rider of Groupama. That's like next level cooperation across rival teams. So the French team is definitely on one page when it comes to Maduas who they're riding there. for. Ooh, interesting. No, I think he extended. <laughs> <laughs> but if we if we don't look at towards the later phase, because I feel like after all these attacks, after all these moves and so forth. But why didn't that group go? Clear. I know I know Matt, I know Ben was chasing, but I'm sorry, but I what? think that there were so many solo leaders in that group. 
the Petersons, the Vanderpools, the Pogacars, the Wout van Aats, that they somewhat started to look at each other. And I think that was the, the thing that made that group fail. I think so. It could also be Van Aert, I think maybe we're skipping. Maybe he's still trying to play the Remco car behind. I, I'm not sure, but... I'm not sure about that. There were moments yeah. when he was in a group ahead and he was asking Peterson to pull yeah. himself away from a group that had a favorable situation for the Belgians. So I think he I was think, trying to get ahead of things. I think they just decided it was too far and they weren't really committed. And, yeah. you know, there were people committed behind. But then, yeah, lap seven, we've got two laps to go. Peterson goes solo. I think this is a mistake. Uh, I don't mind Denmark's strategy. I have no problem with broadly in the early laps, but I think attacking solo when you're Pedersen with your sprint with a domestique of Belgium chasing you is, yeah, is, you, you are just going to kill yourself and waste energy. And that's what happened. He gets closed by, by Van Hooydonku. Then he and Benoit sort of tried to do a lead out for Van Aert again, Benji, rather than trying to make Vanderpool do something you I didn't see Vanderpool when that group got brought back the Betty Old Pog Van Aert group yeah between that and when that group formed again I swear I did not see Vanderpool in this race yeah it's kind of he was so hidden in that group and I don't know what I was expecting to really see from him at that one I feel like he was kind of recharging from he had that initial major attack earlier on in the race and I feel like he was just trying to kind of follow because I saw people on on social media already saying, oh, Van der Poel doesn't necessarily look that good at this phase. But I was like, I don't know. He was his his attack was really strong at the start. I was just expecting for a, a brutal attack that would follow. And maybe he thought to himself, okay, if I just keep on following right now, maybe I'll get to the point with with 40 kilometers to go, roughly, where I can throw another one in, in the fight. And maybe then the the splits will happen with more attrition in the legs for everybody else. So I'm, I'm looking at it more at a, at a saving energy for the phase that he thinks really matters situation. I think so. And that's what happens. It actually does chill out a bit. That really, this is where being in the early break is a massive benefit because you've been yeah. caught. It's chilled out now. You're carried along in that group. Dinam and Vermont not carried along. You still got to work, but <laughs> you know, to, to keep there, but you know what I mean? And and that they can now get a really good result. And Scones is still there. And you're really seeing the, the hard men who can go hard after six hours plus. Yeah. Um, and yeah, Belgium roll attacks. Bertiol goes away. 55 Ks to go. <laughs> it starts raining and no one goes with him. There had been Switzerland. I'd, Schmidt and Schelmers have tried to yeah. go as well. Uh, Mauro Schmidt apparently not good enough to make quick steps. Classics team, but... <laughs> I think everyone in this race Mate. Is, has been on the podium of Flanders. That's in like the top, like this is a Flanders. You look at the top 10, it's Flanders. And Schmidt, like that's your corner, Benji. So I'll let you speak on that. Mauro Schmidt not riding the Cobble Classics this year for Quickstep is one of the worst rider program mistakes I've ever seen in my goddamn life. <laughs> and it's similar to the point when Paulus hadn't discovered his Cobble capabilities yet. With Schmidt, it was 20 times more obvious to me. Yes. On some climbs in the UAE tour, he didn't have the positioning, but he's clearly good enough at positioning in Wollongong last year to be in the split, and in this race to be in the split again. He's clearly got enough in it, and even if you're not good at positioning, you're, you can be fucking great by anticipating to be in that group with Peterson in Ronde van Vlaanderen, for example, with Asgreen as your teammate, and yeah. oh, I could talk about this for hours, but I'm really salty about that, that he didn't ride the classics, and 
He's now going to Jayco, so let's hope they send him to the classics this oh, time. Oh, they will. They got their classic seems terrible, so <laughs> they will. Um, but yeah, anyway. that was that was that was amusing. That was amusing. But yeah, Betty all goes clear. Rain starts, and it gets to mate, thirty seconds. Belgium put the note on the front just to chase, yeah. and I was like, "This is where I keep saying it." Like Van der Poel, he just—I'm not saying he can't keep getting away with it, but <laughs> he can't he, keep getting away. He with can't it. keep getting away with it. Yeah. They just bring the race to him. And like, I'm not, I'm not really... Okay, Belgium need to be with Bediol because Bediol isn't Schelmerzer. Bediol won Tour of Flanders. Bediol's yeah. a really good rider. And, and that's the problem for Belgium. It's like, oh, we'd love to do the one-two attacks, but if we do that shit, he's going to get 50 seconds a minute. He could win this race. So basically, Benoit just chases for a long time until he blows, blows up. And we have another, the rain starts, and that's helping Bediol. I think Narvaez crashed during yeah. the Benoit chase. Did that create the split of the top guys? Yes, we saw the group behind, a group of roughly 10 riders. Evremko still in the group, at the back of a group, still in the same position as yeah. he was for most of the race. The last 10% of each group he's in. And Narvaez's crash actually happens just before either Steven or Remco. They both had a red helmet, and I couldn't Stirvin, really see it from behind. Probably Steven. And... Because of that, Narvaez crashing out on the left, you've got a few riders going off of the front. That is Wout van Aert, Pogacar, Van der Poel, Pedersen, and Benoit was still there before he blew up. He was about to blow up anyway. And then there's a gap there, and Benoit just keeps going for a bit. Steven's behind, and the rest of the group is behind with a lot of riders like Mauro Schmidt, for example. I think King might have been also still there as a, as a Swiss rider, and also some other riders that are Alex Aramburu, favorite for this race beforehand. He, he was, was also there, still yeah. present, so I just want to mention that the absolute legend was still present there. Unfortunately, not anymore after the Narvaez crash. Denim. Denim from the breakaway, my man. He was still there. I can't <laughs> believe it. And two Clark Latvians. was also really strong, I feel like, in this race. Two Latvians and Eatsquins and Nylans. But that group that was created, when Van Aert, Pogacar, Vanderbilt, Peterson, and then Benoit went off the, off the back of that group. So those four riders, those are the riders that if you talk about this race beforehand and talk about the final and talk about the fact that Emco could have gone early to win this race and so forth. But in the late phase, those are the four riders we are expecting. Yeah, Peterson, I might have had him as my preview pick for this race, but he was much stronger than I expected him to be. They, and they got to work. Okay, the Bediol gap was 45 seconds. They realized, okay, we've got to start working into this. They probably needed a thinner group and, and Benoit was on his last legs and they do get to work, and they move that gap down to 20 seconds. It starts to hover there for a long time. I feel like Bediol in the rain, it did help him. Like, his handling was very, very good. It was a shame for Narvaez. I would have liked to see a, see a, a South American uh, in the top 10 would have been nice, actually, and I think he would have got there just to, just to mix up the, on, a, on a parkour like this. But anyway, they're working into it, and there's no team tactics anymore. Remco's gone. Yep. Van Baal's gone. Poggy doesn't have a teammate in the first place. Schelmoser's gone. Schelmoser, he stopped during the rain to let t air out of his tires or something? I don't know. It was weird. Um, <laughs> I didn't know what was happening. I he like stopped and he, he, his he didn't mechanical car, Shimano, didn't really give him a wheel or anything. And then he started touching his wheel. And I was like, letting air out of his tires for the wetness to have more grip is understandable. But you're out of the race if you do that, right? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, if you if you lose contact, it's all over. I mean, sort of. Uh, maybe not for Chase Group behind, but yeah, 
they work into Berdyol's gap and it comes down three seconds, four seconds, five seconds, gets to 20, then comes down another 10 seconds. Berdyol starts to really look like he's laboring. Poggy is accelerating on the climbs. And we get to about oh, the, one, of the, one of the climbs, was it George Street? Not sure which. Uh, there were so many. 22Ks to go. They can see Bertiol on halfway up this little climb. And MVDP absolutely smacks it. Van Aert's in his wheel and he has to release the wheel about 10 seconds into the attack. Poggy and Pedersen didn't have the explosivity. And Van Der Poel goes solo. And immediately I was like, this race is over. Because Van Aert puts his head down. He also then can't, he's so fucked. He couldn't relay with Pedersen or Pagacha for a minute or two minutes. And so the gap to Van Der Poel exploded. And because he's on his own now, taking full risk through every corner, wet corners too, he's taking like a second every corner just about. Not a second every corner. It's impossible. There's 50 corners in the laps. <laughs> but he's taking a lot of time in every corner. A tenth, let's say. And he's just also dusted them with his legs. And so I was like, I almost, I was like, this is a done deal. I've seen this tape before. Um, and only one thing stood in his way, Benji. And it nearly happened. Yeah. Yeah. He kept on riding. And the thing with this final is that if he starts gaining 30 seconds, 35 seconds, he on paper can start going a bit more slowly, but he's also got fucking great technique on paper. So he probably has the confidence to go into every corner, full, full energy, full speed. And there was one corner where he went to the right and he just crashes. His bike slids out, he hits the floor. His right side is scarred for life. Okay. No, it was like the skin was, was visible and so forth. And also on his, on his right hip as well. So he had some injuries, but not serious. He can get back on the bike, but his bike had an injury, or at least his equipment had an injury. His shoe, you know, those like round things that you used to, the to tighten. Yeah, the board aisles, the, the things you used to, di uh, to tighten your, your shoes on the bike. One of those was broken off. Now you've got two on paper on those shoes that he has. So as long as you've got one, your shoe is at least not still on, <laughs> but if he lost both, he would have been fucked. But it's still the less tightness when it comes to your shoes makes it, in my head at least, harder to ride out of the saddle, to sprint, to punch on climbs. Definitely a sprint, yeah. So, was going to get close or not? Well, that was the crazy thing. He crashes, right? And he didn't get up straight away, right? Like, he didn't yeah. just get straight back up. He looked over the bike. I think he had to put the chain back on quickly. It, it was over 10 seconds. I was expecting, Benji, yeah. the guys to come past him. The chase group of Pedersen, Pagacha, and <laughs> Van Aert, who dropped Betty on that climb when they caught him. And then nowhere. And so the gap must have already been up to 40. I, like, they, had already, they had already kind of given up a little bit and, and were playing for second. And that... It didn't matter because you can say, oh, well, that shows you should never give up. It's like, well, actually, no, you should give up because you were never catching him <laughs> anyway. So you should have, maybe Pedersen should have given up. But yeah, it's crazy the gap he already had. And that's also showing the influence of radio communication or the lag thereof in this race because the second group, in my head, the way I saw it, probably did not know that Van der Poel crashed. Because no. how would they know? They've got no radio communication unless there's someone shouting at every corner through the very loud public to them. Vanderpool no. <laughs> crashed. 
Unless Maybe they that can smell blood on the ground, on the, in the <laughs> oh, wet, Jesus in a shark sense. Maybe they found a small piece of his shoe and were like, that's Vanderpool's, we've well, got it. he ripped it. it off. He ripped the bow doll. <laughs> he is very lucky. Like, Narvaez crashed in a corner. Not too dissimilar. Maybe higher speed. You can, A, hurt yourself hitting a barrier. Yeah. B, you can have a proper problem. Like, he, he could, his rear derailleur, Benji, could have been fucked. He yep. could have lost that rear derailleur. Um, but he didn't. And so, you know, fortune favors the brave, I guess. And there's, there's really not much more to analyze. This, this gap just gets completely out of control. Uh, and Vanderpool on, on a tailor-made circuit and a tailor-made race for him absolutely crushes everybody behind him, taking it out to over 90 seconds. It could have been two minutes if he kept pushing. Uh, the car eventually gets moved into the gap after the gap was over a minute and they told him, all right, no need to crash again. And he, he might have taken a little bit off the gas. It could have been a two-minute victory. And just yeah. it's a guy that won Milano San Remo in March, Paris-Roubaix in April, didn't have the best Tour de France, was sick a little bit, and now wins the, the World Championships in such emphatic fashion too. All three were solo with a huge... Well, so, I mean, Roubaix was a little bit different with the mechanical in, mm-hmm. in uh, Canfan and Pavel, whatever it's called, but San Remo was very similar. You put this guy on a 6%, 7% short punch and no one can go with him uh, at the end of seven hours. And, and yep. that's what happened today. Vanderpool was just too good. So we, we did a lot of talking about tactics, but in the end, the best rider won. And that's sometimes, that's a lot of the time actually <laughs> what happens in cycling. Exactly. And when you look at this race, yes, you could say there, there might've been a possibility where someone went early and maybe Vanderpool is caught up in a split behind and that might've, ended up helping, but Van Bala was with him for the majority of the race, so worst case, Van Bala would have bailed him out, I would expect, so I think that as well, next to the fact that the Belgian solved him for him most of the time, he would have been in competition regardless at the end, and he was just better on the circuit, like, we know it favors him, we said it before, but still, to see it in the flesh is, is an extra step, because we saw it in Strade, that Siena, that Siena climb, the way he boosted up there, nobody could follow at that pace, and that's the case on every single one of these hills. And like you said, you said 500 corners across all these labs, but let's say, I don't, I don't recall how many hills there were per lab, but let's say there's 10, that means 100, one of these, 100 of these small hills that really favor Van der Poel over riders. Like, I think Fanat has difficulties on, on these it, races. I think, I think it favors him over Pagacha. Pagacha wants a yes, four-minute climb, like the Quamon. I still feel like with all these big races, I always feel like Fanat is missing something at the end of the race. And I wonder if that is inherently with these punchy parkours, RVV with this world championships, that's different than our than a Roubaix, for example. A Roubaix is completely flat. But if you look at these punchy monuments, these punchy world championships, would you reckon that it is harder for a, a higher wage rider like Wout Fanat? compared to a Vanderpool and a Pogacar, because they use more energy to get over these climbs, the higher weight riders? I think so. Definitely on, on Quamont and uh, some of those climbs, a four-minute climb like that. And I don't know. The answer could just be that, whilst Belgium doesn't want to accept it, that Vanderpool's better than Wafanat in yeah, one-day races sure, the classics. But... Like, it's... <laughs> he's just better. Like, uh, Vanat has a lot of qualities in climbing and time trial and... Yeah, but and, and it's bunch sprint, but in these races, like Vanderpool is a step above. What I'm trying to say is, 
would it be different if it wasn't as punchy? If it's a 2k 6% climb. If RVV is missing the last, like, uh, if RVV misses the path back in the Koppenberg, for example. So E3, basically. Yes. But yeah. you want E3, so. <laughs> yeah, so that is just, so yeah, E3. Yeah, where the climb is far from the finish. Yeah. Uh, they're just, yeah, they're better at punching at the end of a race, whether it's Anson like Peterson. Yeah, Peterson also is, is similar to Van Aert. Van Aert's just better than Peterson. Um, but anyway, the, you know, Vanderpool, this is a legendary season before we talk about the battle yes. for the podium. Like, to win three of his main targets and second in Tour of Flanders, second in E3, two, second was behind Pagacha where, you know, there wasn't much he could do there. Just, uh, yeah, incredible season. And even though the Tour didn't probably go as well as he hoped, he still did a magnificent job and was, you know, what was he? Pivotal in at least three of those Phillips and sprint wins, and now to win the world championships, he'll have that for at least a year, maybe over a year. Yeah, it's going to look nice in the classics. I'll tell you that. I'm very, very happy. He's at least in a distinctive jersey with Arvan Bala taking the uh, the Dutch champs. For certain, I can't wait for the likes of Strade, the likes of Sanremo, the likes of Roubaix, RVV with much of Vanderpool in the world championship jersey. He's gone through an evolution, right? If we take a look at the last few years, because. The first year where he was riding for, was it still Beobank? When he was riding on the road in Dwarsdorf, London and so forth, attacking with 50, 70 kilometers to go with the likes of Jungles and so forth in those races. And I feel like he's gone through this, through this evolution where he's now less the rider that anticipates very early, but more the rider that rides more clever. We've seen him move towards a, a more clever strategy over the years, if that makes sense. But for his world champion year, next year, I want him to go full YOLO again. I want to see him every single race. I don't care if his calendar includes every single race that exists. I want to see him everywhere because he... This might be a weird comment, but to be clear, I like Machu van der Poel. I love the way he is as a rider. He's fucking great, let's be honest about it. But was his way of riding dumber, in quotes, five years ago, more entertaining than the smarter writing that he's doing now? Uh, maybe. Or maybe he's... I have to go back and look. But yeah, definitely the last two years, he's turned a leaf and it's definitely more calculated. He has that moment in the race he wants to go. He Or the phase of the race, he knows, okay, these three guys have got to worry about. And yeah, it's very calculated. I mean, it's still exciting. But yeah, maybe yeah. like... Maybe, you know, it would be more exciting to see him and him throwing haymakers with everybody making mistakes because mistakes <laughs> and then superstars trying to correct those mistakes is, is sort of quite exciting. But hey. it's got, yeah, it's like Remco's la win last year. Was it exciting in Worlds? No, but, you know. Costel Fidardo. Oh, I want to hang it up. Yeah, that, yeah. That, that race was amazing. Of, well, I mean, in Harrogate, so you, you, you mentioned New Yorkshire. That's what yep. happened. He went too early with Pedersen Kung and he basically had a hunger flat and yeah, it seems that he's either fixed those issues now, and he's doing maybe he's just doing the same things, but he doesn't have a hunger flash anymore. <laughs> but anyway, the fight for second and third was between Pagacha Van Aert and Pedersen. It was clear that Van Aert had recovered from his initial weak moment because he was actually now putting those guys under a lot of pressure on the climbs. Yeah, getting gaps. Eventually, in the finish on the last little climb, he got a proper gap on Pedersen, put the foot down, and essentially soloed away for second. Pedersen was caught in two minds the whole time. Pedersen was like, I want to fight Van Aert for second. 
Van Aert's going clear for second, and then he's got Pogaccia in his wheel not relaying, and he probably decides a little bit too late, ooh, I should just fight for third now between me and Pogaccia because Van Aert's too strong. And he actually, yeah, Van Aert goes clear for second. Pedersen launches when Van Aert's crossing the line, like, I think 10 seconds ahead of them, or maybe even longer. No, longer. Pedersen launched so, so yeah. far out. And uh, I was like, that's a bit risky. I know you got a good long <laughs> sprint, but this was not like 20. This was a long way out. And Poggy's in the wheel the whole time, and Poggy comes around and take third. So unfortunate for Pedersen. Uh, but yeah, the podium is Van der Poel, Van Aert, Pogaccia, and Pedersen. He and Denmark were very active and very strong, but, you know, they miss out on the podium today. I want to bring the spotlight to Van Aert for a second. We spoke about Van der Poel's season. I think we need to speak about Van Aert's season as well, because let's go through it for a second. He wasn't really there when it comes to Tirreno, but when it comes to Sanremo, he arrived and got third in that race. He won E3 from the group with Pogacar and Van der Poel. Then he gifted him to Laporte. At RVV, he just wasn't good enough compared to the others in the same way as today, where he ended up being fourth in that race. Roubaix, I still think that without the puncture, that it's very possible that Bernard wins that race, but that's just a personal opinion. I think, I think a lot of people disagree with that. Then he won the Belgian ITT Championships, but when it comes to the Tour de France, he, he didn't get a stage win. He didn't get to shine at the, at the front. He was a domestique, and in some stages, he was a good domestique, like Tourmalet, for example. He was very strong there for, for Vingegaard. He got second at the World Championships now, is winning only E3 and the Belgian ITT Championships, keeping in mind that he gifted Kendrevelhem enough for Wout Fenard as a rider on his level. I think Belgian media might actually stamp it as a failure of a season, while uh, I find that a bit harsh, maybe. Well, it's just a reality. Four, four targets. Mm -hmm. Or oh, maybe include San Red, but Flanders, Roubaix. Tour de France stage, world champs. Yeah. Didn't win any of them. Uh, and there's the ITT. The ITT will be a big target. And yep. with Remco's shape, I mean, this, I think this is relevant to Remco's shape because I don't know how technical the ITT is, but I think Remco on the TT bike too really struggles in the corners compared to someone like Van Aert or Kung. Uh, yes. But yeah, I mean, it's not just the Belgian media. I think he himself would be like, no, that's not, I have my objectives before the season. I wanted to win these races. I didn't win. That's just not what i'm here for so you know that's just the way it is uh sometimes uh very strong in a lot of those races but it came up short today and i don't see any real world where, where van Aert could have won today's race maybe yep. remco Evenepoel if he handled his bike better and anticipated and van der Poel or pagatja went in that anticipating move but there's no world in which van der Poel ever lets van Aert get into an anticipating group and so he put a minute and a half into him on the final yep. 20Ks, crashing when he crashed. <laughs> so, yep. like, yeah, it's, it's just um, Van der Poel is just too good in, in many of those races, and that's how it is. So, like, the weird... Oh, the, oh, sorry, go on. The only point at which I can point in this race where I'm like, this could have put Van der Poel in trouble is if Pogacar didn't respond to every Remco and Wout van Aert move. That's the only point. All the rest... Yeah. I don't necessarily think that Van der Poel could have lost in any other situation. And what a performance by Pogaccia, you know, to come out of, of Tour de France and not know if he's doing yes. the race and 
to come here and get third for his country is a big result. A lot of UCI points for UAE too. And fifth is Stefan Kung. We didn't see him. We actually saw Schoen's dropping Paulus, who was yes. then chasing Betiol. But the top 10 looks completely different. So on the last lap, they essentially, Kung, Sturven, Dinham, catch Schoen's, beat him in the sprint. That's hey. five, six, seven, eight. But no, Australian. Ninth and Betiol 10th. Yeah, Australia lit. Dinham, he scored more UCI points in this race, I think, than in the Tour de France, the entire team of DSM? No, that can't be right. I think that's right. He scored 265 UCI points, and I don't think DSM got that in the entirety of the Tour de France. They scored 260. Uh, if you go and check out Raul's article, legendrish.com. <laughs> Holy shit. And he's in the early break. It's just like a sacrificial lamb. What a performance. Now, he's an ex-mountain bike rider, and I think that... I mean, you look at this top 10. Van der Poel, Van Aert, Pogaccia, Pedersen, Kung, Sturven, Dinim's the exception. Skuens, Benoit, Bertiol. You know, they're, they're RVV guys. Paulus, Van Baler, 11 and 12. Uh, Remco eventually finishes down in, in 25th. He doesn't DNF, but I think 51 riders finished. Uh, <laughs> disappointment for France. Uh, France and uh, yeah, France and Great Britain, I think, didn't have the day they hoped for. Like, well... Yeah. Britain didn't even have the team to start with to compete at the top level. Fred I Wright, mean, it should still be better than this. That's Fred, true. R Fred Wright and Stuart and Turner, like, yeah. they're DNFs. I mean, like, is... Let me have a look. Uh, you know, is Fred Wright or Turner, are they worse than Simone Velasco or Rota on this course? Like, not really. True. Or, you know, it's just... Anyway... How would you rate the race, Benji, overall? I'll be honest, this route wasn't the most pretty one. Pretty ugly at Glasgow Circuit, if you look at the surroundings and so forth, but I watch a race for the entertainment of the race and not for the surrounding environment and so forth, and the race was pretty damn spectacular. This was one of the better world championships in terms of action that I, that I remember. I do think that we've been spoiled a bit the last couple of years, no? I feel like we've been spoiled as cycling fans that we've got so many good races that it's well, hard to... Well, last year was terrible, the world champs. Yeah, but it's hard to cherish the races like today, knowing that we have, like, Strade 2021 is one of those races that I've got up there that I'm not sure how easy it is to beat at. Roubaix also, the rainy Roubaix was great, but the year after was also a fucking great race. So there's so many races where I'm like, ooh, Granol stage in the Tour de France, and... Do you put the World Championships of this year next to that? Uh, I thought it was pretty good. Mm -hmm. It was pretty good and open and aggressive. Um, but maybe it needed a little bit more in the... I don't know. It felt like the favourites, they got together in a group. They chased Betiol. Yeah. And MVP said, see you later. And that was... What do you think? Yeah, the race. About circuits. I mean, they love the World Championships on a circuit. It's so the spectators mm -hmm. can see the riders 10 yeah. times. It's, it's in theory so they can make the roads up to scratch. Um, you know, it's good for the city that's paid for it. But yeah, it's just that's what World Champs racing is. I think it's fine. I think it favours a certain rider, uh, yes. for sure. But we'll see next year in, I think, will be Hilly in... Uh, Zurich? I don't know. I don't know. Actually, is next... or medium mountainous? They just yeah, but they just do the same, the same one. I think maybe more. I wonder, 
full Mountain World Championships. Me too. Bogacar versus Roglic in his own team. Because that, that's, that's the new Belgium then, right? Oh, true, yeah. And then Evenepoel on the other side with the likes of uh, Vingegaard when it comes to Denmark. Schelmoser and Vingegaard. <laughs> my man, that's the World Championships I want to see oh, on my plate. Isn't it in Solange in 2020? Yeah, I think it's in the Alps uh, in the next three years. But speaking of Pogacar, like, he needed Moritz or Tratnik today. Like, he, he could have even, uh, probably not, but he, I, I don't see how he wins the race. Maybe he does with them anticipating, but yeah, yeah he, he really, he did a fine performance for how isolated he was in this race. Uh, but yeah, anything else that comes out of it, Benji? I think, like, Rasmus Tiller, I've got my eye on. I think he's actually quite good. Um, yeah, but for the TT, or for the women's actually, more relevantly, does this seeing this today makes me think Kopecky is more likely to win? On one end, yes, but how will Bel? We'll talk about it in, in in a preview we have for it. But I feel like if we take a look at the surroundings, then how will Belgium counter the amount of Dutch people will try that will try and attack in this race? Kopecky will have to attack the Wibbers to. I don't remember all the women that are in the Dutch team here. Voss is probably in the team. Volring is probably in the team and so yeah. forth. So that's my thing. And when it comes to Van der Poel, he was also in the second or third best team in the, in the race. So that helps. Well, I don't see Belgium in the women's race being the second or third best team in the race. Yeah, but how many important gaps did Van Baal shut for, for Van der Poel today? Yeah, but Belgium and Pogacar closed them for him. So... It depends on how the other yeah, countries react. It's a big Kopecky. assumption to say that the Dutch women are going to work seamlessly together. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> but yeah, I, th I think uh, Kopecky will be happy with what she saw today. I don't know how her technical handling is. Maybe there's a rider who their technical handling is just unbelievably good. One yeah. of the, I don't know if any of the cyclocross women are doing it, uh, in which case they will certainly have a big advantage because Van der Poel uh, lent on that heavily today. But what races do we have after this? So what is Pagasha doing now? He's doing classics. Yes, Lombardia and Quebec probably, Isn't it I'm weird? guessing. August 6th? Doesn't this feel like the season's over for a lot of these riders? I think it can't. Like, Wild Fanon, for example, the ITT arrives, and then he's going to probably Quebec and Montreal, I think. Is there any other race that he cares about? Maybe the, maybe the fucking Belgium Benelux Bingo, Bongo. What's it called now? Renui? Renui, yeah. Maybe that'll have a stacked start list because you'll have all these classics riders looking for something to do in, in the end of <laughs> August, start of September. Yeah. And you could have a great list. I mean, yeah, Pagaccio will do Lombardia and win that probably and Montreal. That's, okay, it's not completely over, but yeah, it's very strange to have this before the Vuelta. I'm all out of sorts, well, uh, to be honest. Our producer is throwing it in there once again. He's saying, uh, Luke is saying, move Roubaix to autumn. Facts. <laughs> Roubaix in, the win in, in autumn would be the best thing to do. Yeah. But, is yeah. it more dangerous though, to have a rain every year? <laughs> uh, yeah, probably. Probably is more dangerous. But I don't know. It, it would make the season. It'd give because now that all these classic guys have peaked for something, and someone like yeah. Pedersen, apart from okay, yeah, you can say Britannia Classic, but he really has no other one-day race to carry this shape to. Um, yeah. A serious race. So anyway, maybe we're all sick of cycling and we all want to have a bit of a rest. I don't know. Um, <laughs> couldn't be me, but yeah. Good race, a oh, really exciting race. Uh, not too many crashes, the, you know, despite the French team saying there'd be loads of crashes. Actually, there weren't too many, only when the riders really pushed the, their own limits too much, like Van der Poel, and I think a very, very deserved winner in this Men's World Championships, the, the best one-day rider in the, in the world. At least, maybe not 
best one, the best best classic strider in the world. Certainly, Van der Poel uh, has an emphatic win, and and adds to that Palmaris. So, and yeah, really a really fine podium and top ten of deserved riders. So, uh, yeah, hope you enjoy the podcast. We'll be doing the TT preview tomorrow or Tuesday, so stay tuned for that, and we'll see you with that then. Till then, ciao.